This is Tom Sullivan, the narrator from the Sermon Audio site, the narrated Puritan. I wanted to give a little bit of an introduction to this work on the mortification of sin. This work, this chapter, is different than the one that is in Volume 6, written in 1656. In fact, this is from his work on pneumatology, which is actually commenced 18 years later. And as I was reading this again, and I have read it in the past, I've even narrated it in the past, I can see that there is an analysis and a depth here that he had gained in 18 years since he had written on this. Basically, what were his sermons for teenagers when he was a mere 40 years old? So, with that background... I wanted to narrate this again as I will be teaching on this. Some of the headings that he talks about in this chapter is Mortification of Sin The second part of sanctification Frequently prescribed and enjoined is the duty What the name signifies with the reasons of it It's also that of crucifying sin The nature of the mortification of sin explained Indwelling sin and its principle Operations and effects the object of mortification. There is yet another part, or effect of our sanctification by the Holy Ghosts, which consists in and is called mortification of sin, as what we have already insisted on concerns the improvement and practice of the principle of grace in which believers are endued. So what we now propose concerns the weakening impairing and destroying of the contrary principle of sin and its root and fruits, in its principle and actings. And whereas the Spirit of God is everywhere said to sanctify us, we ourselves are commanded and said constantly to mortify our sins. For sanctification expresses grace communicated and received in general. Mortification, grace as so received, improved, and acted to a certain end. And I shall be brief in the handling of it because I have formally published a small discourse on the same subject. And there are two things that I shall speak to. First, the nature of the duty itself. Secondly, the manner how it is wrought in us by the Holy Ghost, which I principally intend. It is known that this duty is frequently enjoined and prescribed to us. Colossians 3 verse 5 Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Mortify your members, that is your carnal, earthly affections, or by avoiding fornication and so on. And so a distinction is made between carnal affections and their fruits. Or the special sins mentions are instances of these carnal affections. Mortify your carnal affections, namely fornication and the like, in which there is a metonymy of the effect for the cause. And they are called our members, because as a whole principle of sin and course of sinning which proceeds from it is called the body of sin, Romans 6, 6, or the body of the sins of the flesh, Colossians 2, 11. With respect to these particular lusts, are here called the members of that body. Mortify your members. For that he intends, not the parts or members of our natural bodies, as though they were to be destroyed, as they seem to imagine who place mortification and outward afflictions and macerations of the body, he adds, 
that are on the earth, that is, earthly, carnal, and sensual. Number two, these affections and lusts. The old man, that is, our depraved nature, uses naturally and readily as the body does its members, and which adds efficacy to the illusion by them it draws the very members of the body into a compliance with it, in the service of it against which we are cautioned by our apostle in Romans 6.12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, that is, our natural bodies, that we should obey it in the lust thereof, which exhortation he pursues, verse 19, As you have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness and to holiness, which some neglecting, to take the members of Christ, that is, of their own bodies, which are the members of Christ, and make them the members of an harlot. 1 Corinthians 6.15 And many other commands there are to the same purpose which will afterward occur. And concerning this great duty we may consider three things. 1. The name of it, in which it is expressed. 2. The nature of it in which it consists. 3. The means and ways in which it is effected and wrought. Number 1. For the name it is two ways expressed, and both of them are metaphorical, by which we render to mortify ourselves. The first is used in Colossians 3, 5, which is to mortify, that is, extinguish and destroy all that force and vigor of corrupted nature which inclines to earthly, carnal things, opposite to that spiritual, heavenly life and its actings, which we have in and from Christ, as was before declared, to kill, to affect with, or destroy by death. But yet this word is used by our apostle not absolutely to destroy and to kill, so as that that which is so mortified or killed should no more have any being, but that it should be rendered useless as to what its strength and vigor would produce. So he expresses the effects of it in a passive word. Romans 4 verse 19 He considered not his own body now dead are now mortified. The body of Abraham was not then absolutely dead, only the natural force and vigor of it was exceedingly abated. And so he seems to mollify this expression in Hebrews 11.12, which we well render of one in him as good as dead, intimating a respect to the thing treated of, so that to mortify signifies a continued act and taken away the power and force of anything until it come to be dead. Under some certain ends or purposes, as we shall see, it is in the mortification of sin, Romans 8, verse 13. If you, through the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Another word to the same purpose. It signifies, as the other does, to put to death. But it is used in the present tense to denote that it is a work which must be always doing. If you do mortify, that is, if you are always and constantly employed in that work, and what the apostle here calls the deeds of the body, he therein expresses the effect for the cause metonymically, for he intends, as he expresses the same thing in Galatians 5.24, the flesh, 
with the affections and lusts, whence all the corrupt deeds in which a body is instrumental arise. Number two, the same duty with relation to the death of Christ as a meritorious, efficient, and exemplary cause as expressed by crucifying. Romans 6 verse 6, Our old man is crucified with him. Colossians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Chapter 5 24, They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Chapter 6 verse 14, By the Lord Jesus Christ, the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Now, as perhaps there may be something intimated in this of the manner of mortification of sin, which is gradually carried on to its final destruction, as a man dies on the cross, yet that which is principally intended is a relation of this work and duty to the death of Christ, whence we in our sins are said to be crucified with him, because we and they are so by virtue of his death. And in this do we always bear about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, 2 Corinthians 4.10, representing the manner of it and expressing its efficacy. Thus is this duty expressed, whose nature, in the next place, we shall more particularly inquire into and declare in the ensuing observations. Mortification of sin is a duty always incumbent on us in the whole course of our obedience. This, the command testifies, which represents it as an always present duty. When it is no longer a duty to grow in grace, it is no longer a duty to mortify sin. No man under heaven can at any time say that he is exempted from this command, nor on any pretense. And he who ceases from this duty lets go all endeavors after holiness. And as for those who pretend to an absolute perfection, they are of all persons living the most impudent. Nor do they ever in this manner open their mouths, but they give themselves the lie. For this duty being always incumbent on us argues undeniably the abiding in us of a principle of sin while we are in the flesh, which with its fruits is that which is to be mortified. This the scripture calls a sin that dwells in us, the evil that is present with us, the law in our members, evil concupiscence, lust, the flesh and the like, and to this end are the properties and actings of folly, deceit, tempting, seducing, rebelling, warring, captivating, ascribed. This is not a place to dispute the truth of this assertion, which cannot with any reputation of modesty be denied by any who own the scripture, or pretend to an acquaintance with themselves. But yet, through the craft of Satan, with the pride and darkness of the minds of men, it has so fallen out the want of a true understanding of this is the occasion of most of those pernicious errors in which the church of God is at present pestered, and which practically keep men off from being seriously troubled for their sins, or seeken out for relief by Jesus Christ. Thus, one is not feared of late openly to profess that he knows of no deceit or evil in his own heart, 
though a wiser than he has informed us that he that trusts in his own heart is a fool. Proverbs 28.26 In dwelling sin, which is the object of this duty of mortification, falls under a threefold consideration, first, of its root, in principle, secondly, of its disposition and operations, thirdly, of its effects. These in the scripture are frequently distinguished, though mostly under metaphorical expressions. So are they mentioned together distinctly. Romans 6, verse 6. Our old man is crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. First, the ruder principle of sin, which by nature possesses all the faculties of the soul, and as a depraved habit inclines to all that is evil, is called the old man, so called in opposition to the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Secondly, there is the inclination, actual disposition and operations of this principle or habit, which is called the body of sin, with the members of it. For under these expressions, sin is proposed to us as in prosentu, in a readiness to act itself, and inclining to all that is evil. And this is also expressed by the flesh with the affections and lusts. Galatians 5 verse 24 Deceitful lusts. Ephesians 4 22 The old man is corrupt. According to the deceitful lusts, the wills of the flesh and of the mind. Chapter 2 Thirdly, there are the effects fruits and products of these things which are actual sins and which, as the apostle speaks, we serve sin, as bringing forth the fruits of it, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Romans 6, 6. These fruits are of two sorts. First, internal, in the figments and imaginations of the heart, which is the first way in which the loss of the old man act themselves, and therefore, of those that are under the power or dominion of sin, it is said that every figment or imagination of their hearts is evil continually, Genesis 6, 5, for they have no other principle in which they are acted but that of sin, and therefore all the figments of their hearts must be necessarily evil. And with respect to our Savior, affirms that all actual sins proceed out of the heart, Matthew 15, verse 19, because there is their root, and there are they first formed and framed. Secondly, external, in actual sins, such as those enumerated by our apostle, Colossians 3, verse 5, Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, all these things together make up the complete object of this duty of mortification. The old man, the body of death, with its members, and the works of the flesh, or the habit, operation, and effects of sin, are all of them intended and to be respected in this. This principle and its operations and effects are opposed and directly contrary to the principle, operations and fruits of holiness, is wrought in us by the Spirit of God, which we have before described. First, 
they are opposed in their principle, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, Galatians 5.17. These are those two adverse principles which maintain such a conflict in the souls of believers while they are in this world, and which is so graphically described by our apostle in Romans 7. So the old and new man are opposed and contrary. Secondly, in their actings, the lusting of the flesh and the lusting or desires of the spirit, walking after the flesh and walking after the spirit, living after the flesh and living in the spirit are opposed also. This is the opposition that is between the body of sin with its members and the life of grace, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, Romans 8, verses 1, 4, and 5. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. By this walking after the flesh, I do not understand at least not principally, the committing of actual sins, but a compliance with the principle or habit of sin prevailing in depraved, unsanctified nature, allowing its predominancy in the heart and affections. It is when men are disposed to act according to the inclinations, lustings, motions, and wills and desires of it, or it is to bend that way habitually, in our course and conversation, which the flesh inclines and leads to. This principle does not indeed equally bring forth actual sins in all, but has various degrees of its efficacy, as is advantaged by temptations, controlled by light, or hampered by convictions, so that all are under the power of sin, are not equally vicious and sinful, but after the flesh goes a bent of the soul and the generality of its actings. To walk after the Spirit consists in our being given up to His rule and conduct, or walking according to the dispositions and inclinations of the Spirit, that which is born of the Spirit, namely a principle of grace implanted in us by the Holy Ghost, which has been at large insisted on before. And thirdly, the external fruits and effects of these two principles are contrary also, as our apostle expressly and at large declares, Galatians 5:19 to 24 For whereas in the enumeration of the works of the flesh, he reckons up actual sins, its adultery, fornication, and the like, in the account he gives of the fruits of the Spirit, he insists on habitual graces, is love, joy, peace. He expresses them both metaphorically. In the former he has respect to the vicious habits of those actual sins, and in the latter to the actual effects and duties of those habitual graces. Number five, there being this universal contrariety, opposition, contending in warfare between grace and sin, the spirit and the flesh, and their inward principles, powers, operations, and outward effects. 
The work and duty of mortification consists in a constant taking part with grace in its principal actings and fruits against the principal actings and fruits of sin. For the residence of these contrary principles being in, and their actings being by the same faculties of the soul, as the one is increased, strengthened, and improved, the other must of necessity be weakened and decay. Therefore, the mortification of sin must consist in these three things. First, the cherishing and improving of the principle of grace and holiness which is implanted in us by the Holy Ghost, by all the ways and means which God has appointed to this end. This is that which alone can undermine and ruin the power of sin, without which all attempts to weaken it are vain and fruitless. Let men take never so much pains to mortify, crucify, or subdue their sins, unless they endeavor in the first place to weaken and impair its strength by the increase of grace and growing in it, they will labor in the fire where their work will be consumed. Secondly, in frequent actings of the principles of grace and all duties internal and external, for where the inclinations, motions, and actings of the Spirit and all acts, duties, and fruits of holy obedience are vigorous, and kept in constant exercise. The contrary motions and actings of the flesh are defeated. Thirdly, in a due application of the principal power and actings of grace, by way of opposition to the principal power and actings of sin, as the whole of grace is opposed to the whole of sin, so there is no particular lust in which sin can act its power, but there is a particular grace ready to make effectual opposition to it, in which it is mortified, and in this application of grace, in its actings in opposition to all the actings of sin, consists the mystery of this great duty of mortification. And where men, being ignorant of this, have yet fallen under a conviction of the power of sin, and been perplexed with it, they have found out foolish ways innumerable for its mortification, wickedly opposed an external natural bodily force and exercise to an internal moral depraved principle, which is no way concerned in this. But of this we must treat more afterward under the third head, concerning the manner how this work is to be carried on, or to this duty performed. The duty of weakening sin, by the growth and improvement of grace, and the opposition which is made to sin in all its actings by it, is called mortification, killing, or putting to death, on a number of accounts. First and principally, from that life which, because of its power, efficacy, and operation, is ascribed to indwelling sin. The state of the soul by reason of it is a state of death. But whereas power and operations are the proper adjuncts or effects of life, for their sakes life is ascribed to sin, on whose account sinners are dead. Therefore this corrupt principle of sin in our depraved nature having a constant powerful inclination and working actually towards all evil, it is said metaphorically to live or to have a life of its own. Therefore is the opposition that is made to it for its ruin and destruction called mortification or killing 
Venus deprivation of that strength and efficacy in which and wherein it is said to live. Secondly, it may be so called because of the violence of that contest which the soul is put to in this duty. All other duties that we are called to in the course of our obedience may be performed in a more easy, gentle, and plain manner. Though it is our work and duty to conflict with all sorts of temptations, yea, to wrestle with principalities and powers and spiritual wickednesses in high places, yet in this which we have with ourselves, which is wholly within us and from us, there is more of warring, fighting, captivating, wounding, crying out for help and assistance, a deep sense of such a violence as is used in taking away the life of a mortal enemy, than in anything else we are called to. And thirdly, the end aimed at in this duty is destruction, as it is of all killing. Sin, as was said, has a life, and that such a life is in which it not only lives, but rules and reigns in all that are not born of God. By the entrance of grace into the soul, it loses its dominion, but not its being, its rule, but not its life. Utter ruin, destruction, and gradual annihilation of all the remainders of this cursed life of sin is our design and aim in this work and duty, which is therefore called mortification. The design of this duty, wherever it is in sincerity, is to leave sin neither being nor life nor operation. In some directions, as our manner is, may be taken from what we have discoursed concerning the nature of this duty, directive of our own practices. First, it is evident, from what has been discoursed, that it is a work which has a gradual progress and a proceed in which we must continually be exercised. In this respect, in the first place, the principle of sin itself. Every day, and in every duty, a special eye is to be had to the abolition and destruction of this principle. It will no otherwise die, but being gradually and constantly weakened, spirit, and it heals its wounds and recovers strength. Hence many who have attained to a great degree in the mortification of sin do by their negligence allow it. In some instance or other, so to take head again that they never recovered their former state while they live. And this is the reason why we have so many withering professors among us, decayed in their graces, fruitless in their lives, and every way conformed to the world. There are some indeed who, being under the power of that blindness and darkness, which is a principal part of the deprivation of our nature, neither see nor discern the inward secret actings and motions of sin, its deceit and restlessness, its mixing itself one way or other in all our duties with the defilement and guilt in which these things are accompanied, who judge that God scarce takes notice of anything but outward actions, and it may be not much of them either, so as to be displeased with them, unless they are very foul indeed which yet he is easily entreated to pass by and excuse. Who judge this duty of the mortification of sin? Superfluous, despising both the confession and mortification of sin, and is root and principle of it. 
but those who have received most grace and power from above against it are of all others the most sensible of its power and guilt, and of the necessity of applying themselves continually to its destruction. Secondly, with respect to its inclinations and operations in which it variously exerts its power, in all particular instances, we are continually to watch against it and to subdue it, and this concerns us in all that we are and do, in our duties, in our calling, in our conversation with others, in our retirements, in the frames of our spirits, in our straits, in our mercies, in the use of our enjoyments, in our temptations. If we are negligent to any occasion, we shall suffer by it. This is our enemy, and this is a war we are engaged in. Every mistake, every neglect, is perilous. And thirdly, the end of this duty with respect to us, expressed by the Apostle, is that henceforth we should not serve sin. Romans 6, verse 6, which refers to the perpetration of actual sins the bringing forth of the actual fruits of the flesh, internal or external also. In whomsoever the old man is not crucified with Christ, let him think what he will of himself. He is a servant of sin. If we have not received virtue from the death of Christ, if he be not wrought to a conformity to him in it, whatever else he may do or attain, However, he may in anything and many things change his course and reform his life. He serves sin and not God. Our great design ought to be that we should no longer serve sin, which the apostle in the ensuing verses gives us many reasons for. It is indeed the worst service that a rational creature is capable of and will have the most doleful end. What therefore is the only way and means in which we may attain this end, namely, that although sin will abide in us, yet that we may not serve it, which will secure us from its danger, this is that mortification of it which we insist upon, and no other. If we expect to be freed from the service of sin by its own giving over to press its dominion upon us, or by any composition with it, or any other way but by being always killing or destroying of it, we do but deceive our own souls. And indeed it is to be feared that the nature of this duty is not sufficiently understood, or not sufficiently considered. Men look upon it as an easy task, and as that which will be carried on with a little diligence and ordinary attendance. But do we think it is for nothing that the Holy Ghost expresses a duty of opposing sin and weakening its power by mortification, killing, or putting to death? Is there not somewhat peculiar in this, beyond any other act or duty of our lives? Certainly there is intimated a great contest of sin for the preservation of its life. Everything will do its utmost to preserve its life and being so will sin also. And if it be not constantly pursued with diligence and holy violence, it will escape our assaults. Let no man think to kill sin with few, easy, or gentle strokes. He who has once smitten a serpent, if he does not follow on his blow until it's slain, 
may repent that ever he began to quarrel with it. And so will he who undertakes to deal with sin, and does not pursue it constantly to its death. Sin will after a while revive, and a man must die. It is a great and fatal mistake if we suppose this work will admit of any remissness or intermission. Again, the principle to be slain is in ourselves, and so possessed of our faculties as that it is called ourselves. It cannot be killed without a sense of pain and trouble. Hence it is compared to the cutting off of right hands and the plucking out of right eyes. Lust, that pretend to be useful to the state and condition of men, that are pleasant and satisfactory to the flesh, will not be mortified without such a violence as the whole soul shall be deeply sensible of. And a number of other things might be insisted on to manifest how men deceive themselves. If they suppose this duty of mortification is that which they may carry on in a negligent, careless course and manner. Is there no danger in this warfare? No watchfulness? No diligence required of us? Is it so easy a thing to kill an enemy who has so many advantages of force and fraud? Therefore, if we take care of our souls, we are to attend to this duty with that care, diligence, watchfulness, and earnest contention of spirit, which the nature of it requires. Also, there is no less fatal mistake, where we make the object of this duty to be only some particular lusts, or the fruits of them in actual sense, as was before observed. This is the way with many. They will make head against some sins, which on one account or other they find themselves most concerned about. But if they will observe their course, they shall find with how little success they do it. For the most part, sin gets grounds upon them, and they continually groan under the power of its victories. And the reason is because they mistake their business, contests against particular sins, are only to comply with light and convictions. Mortification, with a design for holiness, respects the body of sin, the root, and all its branches. The first will miscarry, but the latter will be successful. And in this consists the difference between that mortification which men are put upon by conviction from the law, which always prove fruitless, and that in which we are acted by the spirit of the gospel. The first respects only particular sins as the guilt of them reflects upon conscience. The latter, the whole interest of sin is opposed to the renovation of the image of God in us. Number three, that which remains further to be demonstrated is that the Holy Spirit is the author of this work in us, so that although it is our duty, it is his grace and strength in which it is performed. It's also the manner how it is wrought by him which is principally intended. For the first, we have the truth of it asserted in chapter 8, verse 13. If you, through the Spirit, to mortify the deeds of the flesh, it is we that are to mortify the deeds of the flesh. It is our duty, but of ourselves we cannot do it. It must be done in or by the Spirit, whether we take the Spirit here for the person of the Holy Ghost, as the context seems to require, 
or take it for the gracious principle of spiritual life in the renovation of our nature, not the Spirit himself, but that which is born of the Spirit, it is all one to our purpose. The work is taken from our own natural power or ability and resolved into the grace of the Spirit. And that we go no further for the proof of our assertion, it may suffice to observe that the confirmation of it is the principal design of the Apostle, from the second verse of that chapter to the end of the thirteenth, that the power and reign of sin, its interest and prevalency in the minds of believers are weakened, impaired, and finally destroyed, so as that all the pernicious consequences of it shall be avoided by the Holy Ghost, and that these things could no otherwise be effected. He both affirms and proves at large in the foregoing chapter from the seventh verse to the end. He declares the nature, properties, and efficacy of indwelling sin, as the remainders of it do still abide in believers. And whereas a twofold conclusion might be made from the description he gives of the power and actings of this sin, or a double question arise to the great disconsolation of believers, he does in this chapter remove them both, manifesting that there was no cause for such conclusions or exceptions from anything by him delivered. The first of these is, that if such, if this be the power and prevalency of indwelling sin, if it so obstruct us in our doing that which is good, and impetuously incline to that which is evil, what will become of us in the end? How shall we answer for all the sin and guilt which we have contracted by it? We must, we shall therefore perish under the guilt of it. And a second conclusion which is apt to arise from the same consideration is, that seeing the power and prevalency of sin is so great, and that we in ourselves are no way able to make resistance to it, much less to overcome it, it cannot be but that at length it will absolutely prevail against us and bring us under its dominion to our everlasting ruin. But these conclusions the Apostle obviates in this chapter or removes them if laid as objections against what he had delivered. And he does this first by a tacit concession that they will both of them be found true towards all who live and die under the law without an interest in Jesus Christ. 4. Affirming that there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, he grants that those who are not so cannot avoid it. Such is the guilt of this sin, and such are the fruits of it. In all, in whomsoever it abides, that it makes them liable to condemnation. But secondly, there is a deliverance from this condemnation, and from all liableness to it, by free justification in the blood of Christ, Romans 8, verse 1, for those who have an interest in him and are made partakers of it, although sin may grieve them, trouble and perplex them, and bias, deceit, and violence cause them to contract much guilt in their surprisals, yet they need not despond or be utterly cast down. There is a stable ground of consolation provided for them and that there is no condemnation to them or during Christ Jesus. Thirdly, that none may abuse this consolation of the gospel to countenance themselves to a continuance in the service of sin. He gives a limitation of the subjects to whom it belongs, namely, all 
them, and only them, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Verse 1. As for those who give up themselves to the conduct of this principle of indwelling sin, who comply with its motions and inclinations, being acted wholly by its power, let them neither flatter nor deceive themselves. There is nothing in Christ nor the gospel to free them from condemnation. It is they only who give up themselves to the conduct of the spirit of sanctification and holiness that have an interest in this privilege. Fourthly, as to the other conclusion taken from the consideration of the power and prevalency of this principle of sin, he prevents or removes it by a full discovery how and by what means that power of it shall be so broken. Its strength abated, its prevalency disappointed, and itself destroyed, is that we need not fear the consequences of it before mentioned, but rather may secure ourselves that we shall be the death of it, and not that the death of our souls. Now this, he says, by the law or power of the spirit of life which is in Christ Jesus, verse 2, and thereon he proceeds to declare that it is by the effectual working of the spirit in us alone that we are enabled to overcome the spiritual adversary. This being sufficiently evident, it remains only that we declare to the way and manner how he produces this effect of his grace. First, the foundation of all mortification of sin is from the inhabitation of the spirit in us. He dwells in the persons of believers as in his temple, and so he prepares it for himself. Those defilements or pollution which render the souls of men unfit habitations for the Spirit of God, do all of them consist in sin inherent in its effects. These, therefore, he will remove and subdue, that he may dwell in us suitably to his holiness. Verse 11. If the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. Our mortal bodies are our bodies as liable to death by reason of sin, as verse 10. And the quickening of these mortal bodies is their being freed from the principle of sin, or death, and its power by a contrary principle of life and righteousness. It is a freeing of us from being in the flesh that we may be in the spirit. Verse 9, and by what means this is effected? It is by the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead. Verse 11, that is, of the Father, which also is called the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Verse 9, for is equally the Spirit of the Father and the Son. And he is described by this periphrasis, both because there is a similitude between that work as to its greatness and power, which God wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and what he works in believers in their sanctification, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. And because this work is wrought in us by virtue of the resurrection of Christ, but under what special consideration does he effect his work of mortifying sin in us? It is as he dwells in us. God does it by his spirit that dwells in us, Romans 8, verse 11. As it is a work of grace, it is said to be wrought by the Spirit. And as it is our duty, we are said to work it through the Spirit, verse 13. 
and let men pretend what they please. If they have not the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them, they have not mortified any sin. But do yet walk after the flesh, and continually so to do shall die. But also, as this is the only spring of mortification in us, as it is a grace, so the consideration of it is the principal motives to it, as it is a duty. So our apostle pressing to it does it by this argument. Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? 1 Corinthians six nineteen, To which we may add, that weighty caution which he gives us to the same purpose. Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Therefore in every duty two things are principally considered. First, the life and spring of it, as it is wrought in us by grace. Secondly, the principal reason for it and motive to it, that is to be performed in ourselves by the way of duty. Both these, as to this manner of mortification, center in this inhabitation of the Spirit. For first, it is he who mortifies and subdues our corruptions, who quickens us to life, holiness, and obedience, as he dwells in us, that he may make and prepare a habitation fit for himself. And secondly, the principal reason and motive which we have to attend to it with all care and diligence as a duty is, that we may by it preserve his dwelling place so as becomes his grace and holiness. And indeed, whereas, as our Savior tells us, they are things which arise from and come out of the heart that defile us, there is no greater nor more forcible motive to contend against all the defiling actings of sin which is our mortification, than this, that by the neglect of it the temple of the Spirit will be defiled, which we are commanded to watch against, under the severe combination of being destroyed for our neglect in it. If it be said that, whereas we do acknowledge that there are still remainders of the sin in us, and they are accompanied with their defilements, how can it be supposed that the Holy Ghost will dwell in us or in any one that is not perfectly holy? I answer first, that the great manner which the Spirit of God considers in its opposition to sin, and out of sin to his work, is its dominion and rule. This the Apostle makes evident in Romans six twelve to 14 Who or what shall have the principal conduct of the mind and soul? Chapter 8, 7 and 9 it's a matter in question. Where sin has a role, there the Holy Ghost will never dwell. He enters into no soul as his habitation, but at the same instant he dethrones sin, spoils it of its dominion, and takes the rule of the soul into the hand of its own grace, where he has effected this work, and brought his adversary into subjection, there he will dwell, though sometimes this habitation be troubled by his subdued enemy. Secondly, the souls and minds of them who are really sanctified of continually such a sprinkling with the blood of Christ, 
and are so continually purified by virtue from his sacrifice and oblation, is that they are never unmeet habitations for the Holy Spirit of God. The manner of the actual operation of the Spirit of God in effect in his work, or how he mortifies sin or enables us to mortify it, is now to be considered, and an acquaintance with this depends on the knowledge of the sin that is to be mortified, which we have before described. It is the vicious, corrupt habit and inclination to sin, which is in us by nature, that is the principal object of this duty, or the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, when this is weakened in us as to its power and efficacy, when its strength is abated and its prevalency destroyed, then in this duty, in its proper discharge, a mortification is carried on in the soul. Now this the Holy Ghost does, first, by implanting in our minds and all their faculties a contrary habit and principle, with contrary inclinations, dispositions, and actings, namely a principle of spiritual life and holiness bringing forth the fruits of it. By means of this is this work effected, for sin will no otherwise die but being killed and slain, and whereas this is gradually to be done, it must be by warring and conflict. There must be something in us that is contrary to it, which opposing it, conflicting with it sensibly and by degrees, for it does not die at once, works out its ruin and destruction as in a chronicle distemper of the disease continually combats and conflicts with the powers of nature, until having insensibly improved them, it prevails to its dissolution. So is it in this manner. These adverse principles, with their contrariety, opposition, and conflict, the apostle expressly asserts and describes, as also their contrary fruits and actings with the issue of the whole, Galatians 5, 16-25, the contrary principles are the flesh and spirit, and their contrary actings are in lusting and warring one against the other. Verse 16, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Not to fulfill the lusts of the flesh is to mortify it, for it neither will nor can be kept alive if its lust be not fulfilled. And he gives a fuller account of this in verse 17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other. If by the spirit, the spirit of God himself is intended, yet he lusts not in us, but by virtue of that spirit which is born of him, that is the new nature, or holy principle of obedience which he works in us. In a way of their mutual opposition to one another, the apostle describes at large in the following verses, by instancing and the contrary effects of the one and the other. But the issue of the whole is verse 24. They that are Christ crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. They have crucified it. That is, fasten it to that cross, where at length it may expire. And this is a way of it, namely the actings of the Spirit against it, and the fruits produced by it. So it shuts up his discourse with that exhortation, if we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. That is, if we are endowed with the spiritual principle of life, which is to live in the Spirit, then let us act, work, 
and improve that spiritual principle to the ruin and mortification of sin. This, therefore, is the first way in which the Spirit of God mortifies sin in us, and in a compliance with it. Under his conduct do we regularly carry on this work and duty, that is, we mortify sin by cherishing the principle of holiness and sanctification in our souls laboring to increase and strengthen it by growing in grace, and by a constancy and frequency in acting of it in all duties, on all occasions, abounding in the fruits of it, growing, thriving, and improving in universal holiness is a great way of the mortification of sin. The more vigorous the principle of holiness in us is, the more weak and firm and dying will be that of sin. The more frequent and lively are the actings of grace, the feebler and seldomer will be the actings of sin. The more we abound in the fruits of the Spirit, the less we shall be concerned in the works of the flesh. And we do but deceive ourselves if we think sin will be mortified on any other terms. Men, when they are galled in their consciences and disquieted in their minds with any sin or temptation, in which their lusts or corruptions are either influenced by Satan or entangled by objects, occasions, and opportunities, set themselves oftentimes in good earnest to oppose and subdue it by all the ways and means that they can think upon. But all they do is in vain, and so they find it at last to their cost and sorrow. The reason is because they neglect this course, without which never any one sin was truly mortified in the world, nor ever will be so. The course I intend is that of laboring universally to improve a principle of holiness, not in this or that way, but in all instances of holy obedience. This is that which will ruin sin, and without it nothing else will contribute anything to that end. Bring a man to the law, Urge him with the purity of its doctrines, the authority of its commands, the severity of its threatenings, the dreadful consequences of its transgression. Suppose him to be convinced by it of the evil and danger of sin, of the necessity of its mortification and destruction. Will he be able on this to discharge this duty so as that sin may die and his soul may live? The apostle assures us of the contrary in Romans 7, 7 and 9. The whole effect of the application of the sin and its power to indwelling sin is but to irritate, provoke, and increase its guilt. And what other probable way besides this to this end can anyone fix upon? We'll continue this in the next recording.